Welcome to today's reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger for today, Tuesday, December 20th, 2022. I'm Mark Conley, and here is our first story. On the front page, the headline reads, Teens Learn About Their Town. New Leadership Program Aims to Get Them Involved. And this is written by John McBride of the Messenger staff. The Junior Leadership Program, organized and run by the Greater Fort Dodge Growth Alliance, is working to engage high school juniors with leaders from the community and help those students build a sense of community pride. The program, which held its first event in September, helps juniors discover the positive things about the city by exposing them to educational experiences and career opportunities while also aiming to raise their pride in Fort Dodge. We have a leadership Fort Dodge program that started in 2005 for businesses in the community, said Jill Nelson, the Community Development Director of the Growth Alliance. The main goal is to get those participants involved in the community. They find areas in the community they are excited about or where they want to help, or get involved, and they take on leadership roles with those groups. We thought, why not take the same concept and make a greater impact in the community, utilizing that same structure? And that's where the idea for the high school program came about, she added. The program consists of six days of in-depth learning and experiences. Students experience and learn about important areas of the city, while also meeting with community leaders and decision makers. There are currently 14 juniors from Fort Dodge Senior High School and five juniors from St. Edmund High School involved in the program. Nelson said the school districts have been great supporters of the program. She said counselors at the schools recommended students, and students are given excused absences on the days they attend the program. It's been very cool, said Fort Dodge Jr. Mackenzie McElrath. We are learning about a lot of stuff that I didn't know about. We're learning a lot about our community, and I think the hope is we'll think about keeping our families here when we get older. Areas of focus will include economic development, recreation, arts and culture, health care and public safety, civic engagement, and learning about local government. After an orientation session, the next events were held on October 12th and November 9th. The most recent was December 14th, and others are slated for January 11th, February 8th, and March 8th. A large focus is on community image, We want them to be proud of the community in which they are growing up, said Nelson. When they leave to go into the workforce or into college, we want them to leave with a great picture of Fort Dodge in their heads. Nelson added that the program leaders are just fine, too, with participants leaving Fort Dodge for school or work, as long as they take those positive memories with them. We want them to tell their college roommates and their work friends that they grew up in Fort Dodge, and it's a great place, and I'm proud of my community, she explained. And at the end of the day, 
we want those kids thinking they could see themselves staying in Fort Dodge or moving back to Fort Dodge to start their careers. On the most recent outing, students toured the fire department and Unity Point Health, Trinity Regional Medical Center, along with the Iowa Central Community College Simulation Lab. Students were able to experience what it is like to carry all the equipment of a firefighter, along with developing an understanding of emergency preparedness in Fort Dodge. Students involved in the program needed to commit to all six sessions. The first centered around uh, recreation, and the students visited Camp Wanaki and went through various challenge courses before spending time at the Gypsum City OHV Park. The second session focused on business and industry. St- uh, students toured Nestle Purina Pet Care and toured AML Riverside. I loved it when we went to the OHV Park. We learned about how we have one of the biggest gypsum mines in Iowa. We learned about the history of the park and got to ride four-wheelers. That was a lot of fun, said McElrath. I think it's been very beneficial. It's taught us a lot, she added. Nelson said the conclusion in the spring, Nelson, excuse me, Nelson said after the conclusion in the spring, they will survey the students and get feedback from the schools and businesses about any changes to the program as it goes forward. She also said the program has been able to operate with a $0 budget thanks to the support of the business community. Without asking, we've had businesses step forward to sponsor lunch for the kids. We hope that will continue. We like that we don't have to charge anything for the students to participate. The feedback we've gotten so far has been overwhelmingly positive, Nelson said. It's been such a wonderful experience. I'm having as much fun as the students are. Nelson said the Growth Alliance realizes the program is impacting a smaller number of students, but that they hope to have a plan to allow students uh, to let others uh, they hope to have a plan to allow students to let others know about their experiences. Right now, it's unsure how that will happen, but she's hopeful the students involved can share their stories and then encourage others to get involved in future years. The January session will focus on arts and culture. February will focus on local government. And the final session in March will center around civic engagement. Our next story has a headline that reads, City moves to support AML Riverside expansion. $200,000 in assistance approved. And this was written by Bill Shea of the Messenger staff. The Fort Dodge City Government has committed $200,000 to support an expansion by veterinary pharmaceutical maker AML Riverside that will create 16 new jobs. The City Council on Monday approved a pair of measures that start the process of giving that money to the company. Councilman Andy Fritz and Quinnell McCaleb were absent from the otherwise unanimous votes. AML Riverside is located at 141 Riverside Drive in a building that longtime residents of the community remember as the Fort Dodge Laboratories Riverside plant. 
The company bought that facility in 2015 and began production in 2016. The company makes animal pharmaceuticals for other companies. Those products are then sold under those other company names. In 2020, AML Riverside launched a $6 million investment in the plant to improve research and development capabilities there. In November, it announced an $11 million investment that will create 16 new jobs. The company will add to the existing building to create a dispensing room, multiple processing rooms, and large granulation processing equipment. The new facilities are expected to be in use by mid-2024. To help the company, the City Council on Monday approved a development agreement in which it will give AML Riverside $200,000 over five years. The money will come from tax increment financing, not the general fund that pays for police and fire protection. Tax increment financing occurs when increased property tax revenue from a designated area is reinvested in that area. Typically, the city government will borrow money for a project like the AML Riverside expansion and then pay the debt off with the increased property tax revenue the project generates. To make that possible, the council on Monday added the AML Riverside plant to the center city and industrial park urban renewal areas. Tax increment financing can only be used in those areas. Our next article is entitled Sanitation Spending Reviewed. Fort Dodge Council Continues Budget Work. And this was written by Bill Shea of The Messenger. For Fort Dodge residents, rolling out the trash and recycling containers may be a pain. For their city government, picking up that garbage and all those recycling materials is expensive. The city's proposed sanitation collection budget for 2023 through 2024 is $1,772,387. The city council on Monday reviewed the solid waste collection budget and some other proposed spending plans as it continued working on the budget for the 23 through 2024 year. The city's next fiscal year doesn't start until July 1st, 2023, but state law requires communities to have their budgets finished by mid-March, so the elected officials are working on it now. The solid waste collection budget will be financed by a $16.25 per month fee, which received the final approval of the council Monday evening. The budget includes $418,000 for a new garbage recycling truck. The Sanitation Division of the Public Works Department will continue with four employees. Its current budget is $1,567,703. A separate budget category for buying and demolishing dangerous buildings is slated to have $100,000, with that money coming from a future general, general obligation bond issue. City manager 
David Fierk said that amount would pay for buying and demolishing four houses. Councilman Kim Alsot and Terry Monkey called for spending more on getting rid of dangerous buildings. We still have a lot of property that needs to be addressed, Monkey said. Other proposed budgets in, introduced to the council Monday included $298,172 for building inspection, $270,485 for planning, $210,000 for the Public Works Central Garage, $103,095 for rental housing inspection, $78,858 for the Downtown Self-Supported Municipal Improvement District, $49,000 for the Nuisance Abatement, Mowing and Debris Removal, and $22,000 for the Corridor Self-Supported Municipal Improvement District, um, also known as Fifth Avenue South. Also on today's front page, an article entitled, Rate Increases Win Final Approval from Fort Dodge Council. And this was written by Bill Shea. A series of utility bill increases that Fort Dodge residents and businesses will be paying one final approval from the City Council on Monday. The increases include an 8% increase in monthly water bills for average households. That amounts to an additional $2.82 per month. A $5 per month fee called the Water Service Initiative that will pay for repairing and replacing water mains. New minimum monthly sewer bill of $19.43 with most households paying $25.06, a $1.75 per month increase in solid waste collection bills for a new total of $16.25. The council also approved the second reading of a measure to give up city ownership of 7th Avenue North between 23rd and 25th Streets. Eventually, the Marion Home and Village, located at 2400 6th Avenue North, will take ownership of the street. That item must be approved by the council one more time to become law. Councilman Andy Fritz and Quinnell McCaleb were absent from the otherwise unanimous votes. And turning to news about the weather, also on the front page, is an article entitled Treacherous Winter Storm Coming, and it's written by Kelby Wingard of The Messenger. A potentially devastating winter storm is heading toward central Iowa this week, and Webster County Emergency Management Coordinator Dylan Hagen is telling residents to prepare for severe weather. Plan ahead, he told The Messenger. Don't go out if you don't have to. The National Weather Service has called the incoming winter storm significant and treacherous. As of Monday afternoon, all of Iowa is under a winter storm watch. Starting on Wednesday, light to moderate snowfall is expected to move into northwest Iowa by mid to late day, spreading southward and eastward, causing deteriorated travel conditions, according to the NWS. 
Thursday and Friday, we'll see significant wind and blowing snow, causing potential blizzard conditions, and travel to become dangerous or even impossible at times. By Saturday, strong winds may still impact travel by causing blowing snow, and wind chills will remain between minus 10 and minus 25 degrees. Forecast snow accumulations remain in some flux, but any changes in projected snow totals will not greatly alter the potential for blizzard conditions, according to the NWS. Snowfall paired with gusting winds of up to 50 miles per hour are predicted to create blizzard and whiteout conditions on Thursday and Friday. According to the NWS, the predicted snowfall amounts will be uncertain until the storm gets closer. Wind and snow aren't the only dangers being brought in by this storm. The region will experience extreme cold temperatures, including wind chills of minus 40 degrees or colder. According to NWS, just 10 minutes exposed to those frigid temperatures could result in frostbite. Dress in layers, Hagen said. If you're outside for any amount of time, that, it, that can be a shock to the body, and it doesn't take long for you to get frostbite or hypothermia. If somebody falls outside, they can be laying there for quite a while before someone finds them or somebody gets to them. With the extreme winter weather forecast for the end of this week, Hagen encourages residents to stay home and stay off the roads. Because the storm is not hitting the Fort Dodge area for a couple of days, Hagen says residents should take this time to prepare and hunker down. You always want to have a week or two worth of food, bottled water, a first aid kit, and extra medications, he said. Homeowners should check to make sure their furnace is properly working. And then after the storm, you always want to make sure that you exhaust that your exhaust pipes for your furnace are cleaned out, Hagen said. Otherwise, that can lead to carbon monoxide in the house. Storms with high winds have the potential to knock down power lines, leaving communities without electricity for hours or even days. Hagen encourages residents to make a plan for that possibility. If planning to use a generator, make sure it is outside and don't use it in the garage or any other enclosed space because it could also pose a carbon monoxide risk. Hagen said that if there's a power outage for a significant amount of time, he'll establish some kind of warming shelter, like the Otho Fire Department, with its emergency generator. Hagen also noted that for residents in the more rural parts of the county, the storm's impact on the roads could cause delays in emergency services. He said that in some cases, the emergency medical service may ask for the Iowa Department of Transportation or the Webster County Secondary Roads Department to run a plow ahead of an ambulance if the roads are too covered. Hagen discourages travel during the storm, but he said he understands that might be tough for some families with the Christmas holidays this weekend. If re residents intend to travel anyway, he said they need to take some extra precautions. 
Make sure that they have a full tank of gas. Check their battery and make sure it's good, he said. Make sure that all their lights work and it's beneficial to have an ice scraper and a shovel or even some sandbags if you get stuck on an icy road, he said. The Federal Emergency Management Agency recommends keeping an emergency supply kit in your car, including jumper cables, phone charger, a flashlight, warm clothes, blankets, bottled water, and non-perishable snacks. Understand that if you're traveling and you go in the ditch, there could be a tow ban in place where no tow services are going out, Hagen said. Our deputies might not even be able to get to you, so you can be stuck there for a while. If a vehicle does slide off the road and into the ditch, drivers should make sure that the car's exhaust pipes are clear because it could cause a buildup of carbon monoxide. With the projected wind chills being stranded on the side of the road could be a life-threatening event, Hagen said. For the most uh, up-to-date information and severe weather alerts, Hagen encourages residents to sign up for the notifications through the Alert Iowa Emergency Alert System. To sign up for the alerts, visit https colon backslash backslash bit dot ly backslash 3HILRXG. Hagen will also use the Alert Iowa system to send out alerts if warming shelters are established in communities without power outages. Hagen will also use the Alerts Iowa system to send out alerts if warming shelters are established in communities with power outages. Now, turning inside uh, the pages of the Fort Dodge Messenger, this headline reads, U.S. homeless numbers stay about the same as before the pandemic. The dateline is San Francisco. President Joe Biden's administration announced Monday that it is ramping up efforts to help house people now sleeping on sidewalks and in tents and cars as a new federal report confirms what's obvious to people in many cities. Homelessness is persisting despite increased local efforts. The U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development said that in federally required tallies taken across the country earlier this year, about 582,000 people were counted as homeless, a number that misses some people and does not include those staying with friends or family because they do not have a place of their own. The figure was nearly the same as it was in a survey conducted in early 2020, just before the coronavirus hit the nation hard. It was up about 2,000 people, an increase of less than 1%. The administration aims to lower that by 25% by 2025. My plan offers a roadmap for not only getting people into housing, but also ensuring that they have access to the support, services, and income that allow them to thrive, Biden said in a statement. The 2022 All-In Strategy Roadmap, made public Monday, follows a 2010 effort called Opening Doors, which was the nation's first comprehensive strategy seeking to prevent and end homelessness. Anne Oliva, 
CEO of the National Alliance to End Homelessness and a former HUD executive who worked on the first roadmap said the federal government can influence local action with financial incentives, streamlined processes, and strong policies. Homelessness among veterans, for example, has plummeted as a result of federal leadership, and the country has also made inroads among youth, she said. What they're trying to do here is to show, as a federal government, we are going to work across agencies. We are going to break down silos. We're going to lead with equity. We are going to talk with that about upstream prevention and work on those issues, Oliva said. There are several in briefs in today's Fort Dodge Messenger. The first has a headline that reads, January 6th panel urges Trump prosecution. The House January 6th committee urged the Justice Department on Monday to bring criminal charges against Donald Trump for the violent 2021 Capitol insurrection, calling for accountability for the former president and a time of reflection and reckoning. After one of the most exhaustive and aggressive congressional probes in memory, the panel's seven Democrats and two Republicans are recommending criminal charges against Trump and associates who helped him launch a wide-ranging pressure campaign to try to overturn his 2020 election loss. The panel also released a lengthy summary of its final report, with findings that Trump engaged in a multi-part conspiracy to thwart the will of voters. At a final meeting Monday, the committee alleged violations of four criminal statutes by Trump in both the run-up to the riot and during the insurrection itself, as it recommended the former president for prosecution to the Justice Department. Among the charges they recommend for prosecution is aiding an insurrection, an effort to hold him directly accountable for his supporters who stormed the Capitol that day. The committee also voted to refer conservative lawyer John Eastman, who devised dubious legal maneuvers aimed at keeping Trump in power, for prosecution on two of the same statutes as Trump, conspiracy to defraud the United States and obstructing an official proceeding. Our next in brief article, the headline reads, Harvey Weinstein found guilty of rape. The dateline is Los Angeles. After a month-long trial and nine days of deliberations, Los Angeles, Los Angeles jurors on Monday found Harvey Weinstein guilty of the rape and sexual assault of just one of the four accusers he was charged with abusing. But the three guilty counts involving an Italian actor and model known at the time of the trial as Jane Doe. Uh, one still st struck a major blow against the disgraced movie mogul and provided another Me Too movement, um, excuse me, a Me Too moment of reckoning five years after he became a magnet for the movement. Weinstein, who is two years into a 23-year sentence for a rape and sexual assault conviction in New York, that is under appeal, could get up to 24 years in prison in California when he's sentenced. He was found guilty of rape, forced oral copulation, and another sexual misconduct 
account involving the woman who said she appeared um, uninvited, who said he appeared uninvited at her hotel room during the Los Angeles Film Festival in 2013. You are listening to the Fort Dodge Messenger on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Mark Conley. If you have comments on this or any other IRIS program, please give us a call at 515-243-6833. And we'll now turn to today's obituaries. Our first obituary today is for Michael Arrett age 47 of calendar, who passed away Wednesday, December 14th at his home. Funeral services will be at 1.30 p.m. Wednesday, December 21st at Zion Lutheran Church in Gowrie. Burial will follow at the Cedar Township Cemetery in Rennard. A visitation uh, will begin at 4 o'clock today at the church. Lafersweiler Funeral Home is serving the family. Michael was born October 4, 1975, to John and Carol Barnhoft Errett. He was raised in the Summers and Calendar area, graduating from Prairie Valley High School in 1993. He then attended Iowa Lakes Community College. In Las Vegas, on August 14, 2001, Michael married Tara Blunk, and the, couple, and the couple started their home on an acreage and calendar. He first worked for Smithway and Decker Truck Lines, and then began his ag business in custom application. Michael had a love for all things farming. He raised goats, cows, and horses, and helped his dad on the family farm. Michael was the definition of a volunteer. He was a past Webster County Horse Project leader, volunteer firefighter for Farnham, Farnhamville, and especially loved being his daughter's basketball coach. Michael was an avid Iowa fan and, win or lose, a diehard Cowboys fan. Michael was a friend to many, but above all, a family man. His wife and his children were his entire world. He was the rodeo dad, the mechanic, the shoulder to cry on, the transpiration, the biggest cheerleader, and the most loving husband and father. He was a best friend and a dad that didn't have to be. Uh, He was a best friend and dad that he didn't have to be. Left with broken hearts is his wife Tara, children Dylan Anderson, Alexa Anderson, both of Fort Dodge, Peyton Errett, Drake Errett, and Kylie Errett, all at home. Parents, brother Monty, his wife Holly, and their children, Samuel John, Sarah Beth, and Matthew Jack of Atlanta. Michael is also survived by his in-law, Marilyn Blunk, aunts, uncles, and cousins. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be left to the discretion of the family. Shirley Lapp age 85 of Algona, passed away on December 14th. Private family mass of a Christian burial will be on Thursday at Divine Mercy Catholic Parish, um, St. Cecilia. Lent's funeral home is in charge of arrangements. 
And finally, John Faust of Dow's. Visitation is Tuesday from 4 to 6 p.m. at the Faust Funeral Home in Eagle Grove. Funeral services are Wednesday at 11 a.m. at Faust Funeral Home in Eagle Grove. For more information, go to faustfuneralhome.com. And we'll now turn to uh, Dear Annie. There's a couple of letters uh, today. Um, The first... Dear Annie, maybe it's just one letter today. It is just one letter today. My apologies. The writer writes, Dear Annie, my mother-in-law is 81 and a widow. She currently lives alone. Her health is declining, and she has been talking about wanting my husband and me to move in with her and take care of her and the house. She's adamantly against moving into assisted living or anything similar. I already cook meals and, ma- and take them to her weekly. I help with some household chores and have been maintaining the 10 acres the house sits on. My husband and I talk to her on the phone daily and have for the past two years, since my father-in-law got ill and passed away. My husband is disabled, and I have been his full-time caregiver for over 12 years. Moving in with her would add to my responsibilities to care for both of them. She has suggested that we sell our house and buy her house from her. Her house is completely paid off and is worth about $300,000 more than our home. We currently owe about 250000 on our home due to refinancing, where we withdrew a ca- where we withdrew cash a couple of years ago. Our only income is my husband's disability pay, which covers uh, currently the bills, but not very much else. Her moving into our house would not be an option. It's just too small. There has been no talk of any kind of compensation for me to cook, clean, run errands, take care of the 10 acres, drive her to appointments, and be her caregiver. Her will states that everything will be divided equally between her two sons upon her death. Her assets are at least $1 million, and probably closer to $1.25 million. We live 20 minutes from her. Her older son lives on the other side of the country and hasn't visited in over 17 years and rarely calls her. If we buy her a house, she plans to give the money to her other son as payment for his half of the value of the house. I love her dearly, but honestly don't know if I could handle the added stress. We have opposite political and social views. My husband and I would have no privacy, and her bedroom would be directly across the hall from ours. There isn't even a separate living room. I think if we were to move in, we shouldn't have to pay for the house, and I shouldn't have to become the live-in cook housekeeper, nurse, etc. Am I wrong? Also, how should we split the costs of major repairs as they come up? Signed, Paying to be a Caregiver. And Annie writes, Dear Paying, It doesn't sound like she is taking advantage of your kindness. Sorry, Annie says, Dear Paying, It does sound like she is taking advantage of your kindness. The best thing to do is to set clear boundaries of what you are willing to do and not do. It is not unreasonable for you to request some sort of compensation for all the extra work 
you would be taking on if you moved into her house. Try not to get into a competitive argument about your husband's brother, and focus instead on what will make you happy. Not visiting his recently widowed mother for 17 years shows that he is neither considerate nor kind to her. Let him live with his choices. You sound like a kind caregiver, but when you give to others, it is important um, that you fill, fill your own cup up first. Remember, too, that you are not obligated to sell your house and move into hers. And I think we'll turn back to the in brief section for a couple of more articles. This one is datelined South Portland, Maine. The headline reads, Christmas tree demand remains high despite inflation. For all the worries about inflation and the economy, Americans aren't scrimping on a centerpiece of many celebrations this holiday season, the Christmas tree. Retailers from Home Depot and Lowe's to mom and pop operations raise their prices on trees, but people are still buying them. Some Christmas tree growers fretted over external factors like high fuel, fertilizer, and labor costs, only to rediscover that holiday greenery is largely inflation-proof, even as Americans cut back on retail spending last month. The cost of an average-sized uh, tree from the local Rotary Club's Christmas trees in South Portland, Maine, is $70, $5 more than last year. A survey of 55 of the nation's largest Christmas tree wholesalers indicated virtually all of them intended to raise prices, with most wholesale cost increases in the 5% to 15% range but with some increases reaching 21% or more, according to the Real Christmas Tree Board in Howell, Michigan, which conducts marketing and research for the industry. This in brief headline reads, Not just for kids, toy makers aim more products at grown-ups. The dateline is New York. Since the pandemic, Elizabeth Holenick has turned to toys from her childhood to relieve stress. She and her co-workers chip in to buy Legos at Target and play at their desks. She also started playing with Silly Putty again, noting that she felt comforted by the bouncy, rubbery stuff that changes color. Even her American Girl doll, called Samantha, which she keeps in her china cabinet, resonates more these days. She waited one year for her mother to buy her that doll when she was a child, and now she says it serves as a reminder to always be patient. This probably will be with me forever. I've always needed something to be tinkering with, and I've always prob and and that's probably the safest bet for me to stick with a toy versus keeping trying versus keep trying to figure out how to fix cars or something like that. The 37-year-old Piscataya, New Jersey resident said, Long before the pandemic, many adults turned to toys from Legos to collectible items to tap into their inner childhood for comfort. But all the stresses from the health crisis accelerated and solidified the trend, according to Jim Silver, editor-in-chief of TTPM, a toy review site. And a final in brief article 
headline reads, Mystery Nevada Fossil Site Could Be Ancient Maternity Ward. Uh, the dateline is New York. Scientists have uncovered new clues about a curious fossil site in Nevada, a graveyard for dozens of giant marine reptiles. Instead of the site of a massive die-off as su suspected, it might have been an ancient maternity ward where the creatures came to give birth. The site is famous for its fossils, from giant Icatharis reptiles that dominated the ancient seas and could grow up to the size of a school bus. The creatures, the name means fish lizard, were underwater predators with large paddle-shaped flippers and large jaws full of teeth. Since the bones in Nevada were excavated in the 1950s, Many paleontologists have investigated how all these creatures could have died together. Now, researchers have proposed a different theory in a study published Monday in the current journal or in the Journal of Current Biology. Several lines of evidence all kind of point towards one argument here that this was a place where these giant reptiles came to give birth said co-author Nicholas Pienson, curator of fossil marine mammals at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History. Once a tropical sea, the site, part of Nevada's Berlin-Itchisar State Park, now sits in a dry, dusty landscape near an abandoned mining town, said lead author Randy Ermis, a paleontologist at the University of Utah. And I think we'll turn to sports and the roundup and of local interest. First headline reads, Dodger girls suffer first loss. And this uh, dateline is Spencer. A spirited fourth quarter rally couldn't keep the Fort Dodge girls undefeated here Monday night. The Dodgers suffered their first loss of the season, 53-36 to to Spencer. Fort Dodge, which is 5-1 overall, had used its defense to contain the likes of Des Moines Hoover, Des Moines Lincoln, and Ames in recent wins, but the Tigers, 4-0, flexed their own might on that side of the court. Laney Mall scored 15 points. Payteen Hively had 11 and L.J. Mall, 10 for the Dodgers. Hively, a senior, had another double-double, grabbing 12 rebounds, while L.J. Mall had 8 boards, and Laney Mall had 7. Mia McCaleb dished out 5 assists for Fort Dodge Senior High, which was playing without the service of 3 players due to illness. We played a pretty good fourth quarter, head coach Scott Messerly said. We just spotted them too much of a lead and turned the ball over too many times. Mia did a great job on defense against Jada Piercy, who is a very talented guard. Morgan Bodhald gave us quality minutes stepping into the starting lineup, while Ashlyn Wills and Brooklyn Palmer played pretty well off the bench. The Dodgers trailed 14-10 after the first, and 24-14 at the break, 
as the Tigers built a commanding 43-20 advantage heading to the fourth. Spencer held Emmitsburg and Sioux Central under 37 points in wins and also bested Lamars by four to begin the season. Maureen McDermott led the Tigers with a game-high 22 points, while Jarrah Merchant added 14. This was the first meeting between the two since 2015 when Spencer picked up a 67-44 victory. Fort Dodge boys come up short. The dateline is Spencer. The Fort Dodge boys couldn't sustain after a strong start here on Monday, dropping a 62-53 decision to Spencer. The Dodgers, 1-4 overall, jumped out to a 16-11 lead midway through the second period, but head coach Willie Williams' squad went six full minutes without scoring as the Tigers, 2-1, turned a five-point deficit into a double-digit lead. You can't go that long without scoring, especially on the road, Williams said. I thought we played pretty well, especially defensively, for the first quarter and a half or so, but it fell apart for us before halftime, and we struggled for a lot of the third quarter, too. We have to get better looks, and we have to be more aggressive, be more physically and mentally consistent, push the tempo, play with confidence, he said. Senior Javion Jondal had 13 points for the Dodgers, while sophomore Cade Westerhoff, 12, junior Ty Adams, 12, and sophomore Carter Woodruff, 10, all reaching double-digit figures as well. The Dodgers rallied from a 42-26 deficit and got within eight at one point, but Spencer held off any late uh, rally chances. Fort Dodge did make six second-half three-point baskets as the visitors scored 19 points in the fourth quarter alone. Jondal and Adams both knocked down a pair of triples. Ty and Drake Warland gave us some good, tough minutes defensively, Williams said. We have to do a better job of executing and finding plays to put guys in better position to score. We need to practice with a purpose, hold each other accountable, buy in every day, and show more of a sense of urgency. Owen Olson led the Tigers with a game high of 18 points. The Dodgers are back in action on Thursday, January 5th at number 5, Sioux City East. And turning to some financial news, Wall Street loses more ground, extending a losing streak. And this was written by Damian Trois and Alex Viega, um, who are writers um, for the AP. Wall Street started off the week with more losses for stocks on Monday as investors brace for higher interest rates from central banks to fight inflation. The S&P 500 fell 0.9%, with most of the sectors in the benchmark index closing in the red. The Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 0.5% at the NASDAQ Composite, um, lost 1.5%. Small company stocks also fell pulling the Russell 2000 1.3% lower. 
The latest wave of selling extends the major indexes' losing streak to a fifth day. Each index posted a weekly loss the past two weeks. Markets have been slumping as hopes for a gentler Federal Reserve vanish amid stubbornly hot inflation. The central bank last week raised its forecast of how long interest rates have to stay elevated to cool inflation that has been hurting businesses and threatening spending. The European Central Bank also warned that more rate hikes are coming. Communication services stock, technology companies, and retailers were among the biggest losers Monday. Disney slid 4.8%, Microsoft fell 1.7%, and Hope Depot dropped 1.9% lower. Facebook's parent company fell 4.1% after the European Union accused the company of breaching antitrust rules by distorting competition in the online classified ads business. U.S. crude oil prices rose 1.2%. That helped boost some energy stocks. Marathon Petroleum gained 1.2%. All told, the S&P 500 fell 34.7 points to 3,817.66. The index is down about 20% this year, with less than two weeks left in 2022. The Dow dropped 162.92 points to 32,757.54 while the NASDAQ fell 159.38 points to 10,546.03. The Russell 2000 gave up 1.4%. European markets mostly rose, while Asian markets closed lower overnight. Treasury yields gained ground. The yield on the 10-year Treasury, which influences mortgage rates, rose to 3.59%, from 3.49% last Friday. Investors have several economic reports to review this week as they try to determine the continuing path of inflation. The National Association of Realtors delivers its November tally of U.S. home sales on Wednesday. Home sales have been falling, but prices in the housing market have remained strong. The Conference Board will release its Consumer Confidence Report for December on Wednesday. Consumer confidence and spending has been another strong area of the economy, but inflation is starting to put a tighter squeeze on consumers. The government will release a closely watched monthly snapshot of consumer spending on Friday, the Personal Consumption Expenditure Price Index for November, The report is monitored by the Fed as a barometer of inflation. Gale's Close Pre-Break Slate. This was written by Dana Becker of The Messenger. The St. Edmunds basketball team will hit the court one final time before the holiday break, hosting North Central Conference rival Iowa Falls Alden here on Tuesday night. The action begins at 6.15 p.m., with the girls' contest, while the boys are set to follow at approximately 7.45 p.m. It has been a week since either team played, as a planned doubleheader with Clear Lake this past Friday was canceled due to weather. 
The Gale girls, uh, 0-6 overall and 0-3 in the league, are coming off their closest game of the season, a 45-31 setback to Webster City. St. Edmund was within striking distance until the fourth quarter when they were outscored 17-7. Freshman Anna Lurson had a breakout performance, scoring six points against the Lynx off the bench. Junior Sylvia Heldorfer had 11 rebounds, three assists, two blocks, and two steals, while sophomore Lauren Gibb added seven rebounds. Iowa Falls Alden, 3-4 and 2-1, and and has won three in a row behind the play of junior Ella Sherrar and senior Haley Bridgewater. Sherrar averages 15.5 points and 10 rebounds per game, while Bridgewater adds 9 points a night. The cadets have picked up wins over Hampton Dumont CAL, Clarion Goldfield Dows, and Nevada and Nevada since a loss to Humboldt earlier this month. St. Edmund, 1 and 5 and 0 and 2, has dropped 3 straight while battling the injury bug. Sam Miracle is averaging 20 points per game on 46% shooting. Jackson Palmer is posting 12 per game, while freshman Jack McElroy adds 10. Iowa Falls Alden, 2-3 and 2-0, has reeled off back-to-back wins under head coach Michael Collison. Andrew Bicknies and Kaysen Boyer are each averaging 12 points per game with Calvin Hutchison adding 11. Since single-digit losses to South Hamilton, Nevada, and Charles City to begin the year, the cadets have topped both Clarion Goldfield Goldfield Dows and Hampton Dumont CAL. This headline reads, Man who threatened to kill CDC head pleads guilty to charges. The dateline is Jackson, Mississippi. A Mississippi man who threatened to kill Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Director Rochelle Walensky has pleaded guilty to making threats in interstate commerce, federal federal prosecutors announced Monday. Robert Weiser Bates, age 39, of Ridgeland, threatened to kill Walensky in voicemails left in July 2021 at the CDC headquarters in Atlanta, according to records. Bates admitted to making the threatening calls in an interview with agents from the Federal Bureau of Investigation, according to a news release from the office of the U.S. Attorney General, sorry, the U.S. Attorney Darren J. Lamarca. He also said he would kill Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and chief medical advisor to the president. In August, a West Virginia man was sentenced to three years in federal prison after he sent in emails threatening Fauci and other federal health officials for taking uh, for talking about the coronavirus and efforts to prevent its spread. Bates is scheduled to be sentenced on March 7th. He faces a maximum penalty of five years in prison and a $250,000 fine. And another sports headline, first IHSAA prep rankings released. This is written by Dana Dana Becker of The Messenger. 
For the first time, the Iowa High School Athletic Association has released official basketball rankings. Committees were formed to gather information and compile a top 10 in each class, with the groups including former head coaches, media members, and three current IHSAA staffers. The IHSAA will use the regular season rankings as a primary tool for postseason assignments while maintaining school and geographic considerations. Rankings will be released next on January 9th and each Monday afterwards. The last two editions will be following the release of substate brackets intended to factor the entire regular season into state tournament seeding. Waukee Northwest was tab number one in Class 4A, with Cedar Rapids Xavier 3A, Central Lion 2A, and Grandview Christian 1A joining them. Humboldt, which reached the 3A state tournament a year ago, is ranked fourth behind returning All-Stater Will Ornis. The Wildcats are joined by North Central Conference rival Clear Lake, who is seventh. West Burlington, coached by Eagle Grove native and former Iowa Central standout Ryan O'Hearn, is ranked fourth in 2A. And one final in brief for today. The headline reads, Council Approves Ambulance, ambulance Purchases. The Fort Dodge Fire Department will be getting one new ambulance and having another one remounted on a new chassis. The new ambulance will cost $295,225. It will replace a 2014 model now in use. Also, the box on a 2016 ambulance now in use will be removed and placed on a new Ram chassis. Doing that will cost $139,346. Lifeline emergency vehicles of Sumner will build the new ambulance and remount the other.